Last week we began uh, a new series in the book of Ephesians, and uh, we, got, we got all the way through verse 1 last week, and this week all the way through verse 2. It will speed up, I promise you. Don't worry. Some of you will live to see the end of this series. Um, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read for us um, verses 1 and 2, but I'm going to be preaching on, on verse 2 this morning. Um, so, you know, normally we stand for the reading of God's Word, but don't yet, uh, because this is an epistle written to the church, and we, we know from Scripture that probably these letters were read in the churches as they gathered for worship. So this morning what I want you to do is I want you to imagine that you're a smallish church in an informal setting. That shouldn't be too hard. And a leader in your church is about to stand up and read from a letter from the Apostle Paul. I want you to lean in, waiting anxiously to hear what the Lord has to say through him. Now, they would have listened to the whole letter in one sitting, probably. We're not going to do that today. We're just going to look at those first two verses. Are you ready? Okay. This is the word of the Lord. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to say that again. Come on, white car. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray, Father, these words are grace and peace and hope to your people. Let us sit in them for a few moments this morning and hear from you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I don't know if you're familiar with the phrase flyover country. Sometimes it's used in politics or other national conversations to refer to that large swath of land that lies between, quote, the Northeast Megalopolis and Southern California. In other words, flyover country is everything that's not near New York or L.A. These two cities and their surrounding communities are where the movers and the shakers are. Culture is made there. And in many ways, this culture is exported to the rest of the nation. The influence and the affluence of these two polar regions of our country are staggering. You see, New York and L.A., that, that's where the action is. I want you to imagine with me for, for a minute, one of these movers and shakers gets on a plane in New York this afternoon, and they're flying over flyover country to L.A. County, but something happens. Somewhere around Topeka, Kansas, the plane has some sort of engine failure and has to make an emergency landing, and, and the airline says, look, we're down for a while, here's a car, you know, take a drive. And if our mover shaker were to leave the airport in Topeka and drive into town and follow some random family home, what do you think would happen? Well, they might be arrested. But if they're not, they might find something beautiful. Parents reading to their children, meals being shared together, football, flag football teams, community gatherings, chili cook-offs or cooks-off, I'm not sure. County fairs, in short, life. You see, that large swath of land in the middle, it's not flyover country. 
It's real. It's meaningful. It's life. And for a few minutes this morning, let's think together about Paul's greeting in Ephesians 1-2. To our detriment, we often look at this short passage in all the epistles as scriptural flyover country. It isn't. Sure, there are other places in this letter where we might say, that's where the action is. And you're right, and we'll get there. We will get there. But for a few minutes, let's land the plane and see what happens if we follow this verse home. When we peer in the window, we're going to find something beautiful. The grace of God. So I say it again, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let's do it. Let's think deeply this morning together about the grace of God. So what is grace? I really do wonder, because I tried this myself, how many of us could give a short, clear, accurate definition of grace? You know, in our language, grace has a pretty wide semantic range. That, that means it can mean different things in different eras and in different contexts. She entered the ballroom, and everyone noticed that she carried herself with an unparalleled grace. That's not what Paul's talking about. It's beautiful, but that's not what he's talking about. So think just for a second. What do you think grace in this context means. The kind of grace that Paul is talking about is the grace of God. It's the unmerited favor of God. It's goodwill and kindness from God that no one can earn. And Paul, right at the beginning of this letter, he says, grace to you. You are now living in a state of unearned favor the loving kindness of God. Friends, this is everything. It's really everything. The grace of God is everything in the human life. So roll up your mental sleeves. I'm not wearing any, but roll up your mental sleeves and look at grace for a few minutes. You know, the Bible can talk about the grace of God in a lot of ways. But this morning, I want us to look at grace in two, albeit reductionistic a little bit, categories. Common grace and special or saving grace. Now, now, don't disappear. Stay with me. Common grace and saving grace. It's the same grace, it's just applied differently. So what is God's common grace? Have you ever heard that, that term or that phrase? You know what that is? Well, put simply, God's common grace is God's unmerited, unearned favor towards all of mankind. Did you know that in some sense, in some sense, even Adam and Eve experienced the grace of God before the fall? I'm going to prove it to you. What act of righteousness or merit did Adam perform to earn the right to be created? Well, none. He wasn't created yet. 
What good, did, what good work did Adam and Eve do or perform before God for him to put them in a lush paradise with good gifts to meet their every need? None. Adam and Eve, even before the fall, lived, moved, and had their being in the unmerited favor of God. His loving kindness toward them. I'm walking a fine theological line here, but common grace is sort of like that. It's sort of like the leftovers from that world. Now, in Adam and Eve's case, it was a special relational grace of God. But some of those blessings still fall on the heads of believers and unbelievers alike. I was reading Wayne Grudem's uh, writings on this concept this week. It was just so helpful to me. Listen to a few verses that speak to this common grace of God that benefits all humanity. In Matthew 5.45, Jesus says that the Father makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends his rain on the just and on the unjust. Well, that's common grace. And it's real and it's meaningful. God pours blessings of provision on all of mankind. And in Acts 14, Paul tells the people of Lystra much the same thing when he says, In past generations, God allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good and gave you from heaven rains and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Common grace, even to an unbelieving world. And to this day, despite man's sin and rebellion, God sends the sun and the rain on the heads of all. You know, if, if you pick up a history book, I haven't done that in a while, but if you did, you're going to read about countless sieges, sieges of cities. You see, when you lay siege to a city in a military campaign, you surround the city with your forces and you cut off all supply of goods. All supply of goods to the city. Food, water, medicines. And eventually the enemy either dies or surrenders due to famine or hunger and thirst. And all across this earth and all across human history, and generation after generation, God keeps pouring blessings on the heads of the rebels. Summer, winter, springtime, harvests never cease. Yes, famines come, despots destroy economies, sin ravages communities, but the sun and the rain just keep coming, making it possible for us to grow and harvest and enjoy. You might say God is not very good at the sieging of a city. That's hyperbole, but let's say he doesn't choose to do it that way. It's as if God has surrounded the rebellious city of man only to pour supplies into the city as a testimony to his goodness, like Paul said. And yet so many never surrender to his love. Friends, this is common grace. Now stay with me. 
There's another fun story coming. Just hang on. It doesn't stop with the sun and the rain. This same pattern holds in other realms of human life. God's common grace plays out in the intellectual realm and the vocational realm and every area that touches human life. For the sake of time, I'm going to cram all of this into one example, okay? Imagine the heart surgeon. Poor surgeons, they're always being sermon illustrations. But imagine the heart surgeon. Her whole life is gift. The very body she walks around in, gift. The intellect, gift. The universities and the medical schools that were founded years before she was born, gift. The craftsmen and engineers who over time developed and honed skills and knowledge that produced the technological and precision equipment that allow her to save lives gift. And you may say, but what about the drive and the motivation to push through years of medical school and residency? Gift. The air that she slowly breathes in and out as she makes the most calculated incision. Gift. We have nothing of ourselves. Nothing. Only grace. Only gift. The unmerited favor of God worked out in a thousand ways through a thousand channels. Listen. God's common grace permeates every moment of every day, of every human life. And that's why pride is so silly. It's ugly, but mostly it's just silly. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Finding Nemo. I hope many of you have. There's this scene where this clownfish named Marlin, it's confusing, I know, and his friend Dory another small fish, find themselves out of the water, bad, out in the open, bad, on a boat dock, worse. And all of a sudden, you see about a hundred seagulls. Do you remember this scene? Perched all over wires and, and, and masts, whatever that would be called, and the, the boats all, all around the harbor. And when the seagulls notice these two vulnerable, tasty morsels, they all start to say the same thing. Do you remember? Mine. Mine. Everybody say, this is going to be fun. Everybody just say it. Mine, 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 mine. If you haven't seen the movie, that's what it sounds like. Mindless eating machines. All claiming ownership of a gift. Aren't we just like that sometimes? We see the good gifts of God's common grace all around us and we say, mine, mine, mine. No, his. It's all his. Common grace to the believer 
or to the unbeliever, common grace. And if you have slipped into a mind mentality this morning, I hope the words of this sermon haunt you this week. It's a, it's a loving kindness, good-natured haunt. But I hope they haunt you. Every time you find yourself in a quiet room this week and notice your own breath in and out, I want you to think, gift. Every time you're driving instead of walking through the rain to your job, gift. Every morsel of food you lift to your mouth, gift. Good gift of the one true living God of heaven, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And if I hope, I genuinely hope, if you are still behind the besieged walls of the city of man, that you will fling open the front gate and run to the arms of the one who has been filling this city with his good gifts. I truly hope you will. You see, the Ephesian church is, as Jimmy said last week, living in and among one of the largest cities in the world. It was full of trade and industry and idolatry and abuse and beauty and family and sin. And yet, the people there were living under the common grace of God. But the Ephesian church has something more. The Ephesian church has something so much greater and more valuable. They have the saving grace of God. And that is what Paul is reminding them of in his greeting. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Saving grace of God through Jesus Christ. That's what the Ephesian church is about to hear about. And we're going to hear about over the coming weeks. Look at your text. How do we know that Paul is not just extending a common greeting of common grace to the Ephesian church? It's because who the letter's addressed to? The saints who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Those who believe and have trusted Christ Jesus. That's who this letter is to. This church is in a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. They are His holy ones who are called out of the rest of humanity to be in fellowship with Him by His saving grace. That is great news. They've been saved by the grace of God. This is the kind of grace that Paul means. It's, it's still unmerited favor, but in the life of the believer, this unmerited favor has gone all the way to the cross of Calvary. Jesus has lived the life we could not and are not living. He has lovingly hung on that cross in our place. He has paid the price of death for our rebellion against the one pouring blessings on this earth. And God raised him from the dead. And the scripture says that all who put their trust and hope in him by faith will be saved by this grace. That's the gospel, friends. The grace of God is the gospel. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Amen. And we, as we get into the rest of the epistle, 
in the coming weeks, Paul is going to show us this grace of God in Christ from every conceivable angle and with every blessing that's attached to it. it it's going to be a ride of grace and peace and joy as we look at this letter together. It's a glorious saving grace, and for us, it's a glorious salvation. And in response to it, we're tempted to say, God did this amazing thing for us. Now we must go and do great things for him. That sounds right, doesn't it? You know what? We will. And we do, but not for the reasons that you might think. You see, a, a few weeks ago, someone in our family was sick. Quarantining at home. And one of our, our daughters went to stay with another family in, in hopes of staying healthy in this very busy season of life that she's in. And this other family was so kind to our daughter. So kind. She slept in their spare bedroom. They fed her meal after meal at their own table and at their own expense. And when she finally came home, I said to my wife, Sarah, we need to do something nice for them. And we did. Now, why did I say that? Because I don't understand grace. I don't understand grace. A few days later, I was reading a book by John Piper called Future Grace. At the beginning of the book, he says this. Piper writes about what he calls the debtor's ethic. Listen carefully. The debtor's ethic says, because you have done something good for me, I feel indebted to do something good for you. This impulse is not what gratitude was designed to produce. God meant gratitude to be a spontaneous expression of pleasure in the gift of the goodwill of another. He did not mean gratitude to be an impulse to return favors. If gratitude is twisted into a sense of debt, it gives birth to the debtor's ethic, and the effect is to nullify grace. You see, to truly experience the grace that this other family showed us, perhaps a kind note or a phone call would have meant more than the Trader, Joe gift, Trader Joe's gift card. Did I feel a spontaneous expression of pleasure at the grace of this family toward us? Maybe for a moment. And then I immediately twisted it into the debtor's ethic. We have to pay these people back. At some level, I think we nullified the grace that they showed to us. Now they're getting coffee beans and dried fruit out of the deal, so it's probably fine. But do you see what we did? We forfeited the joy of experiencing grace by trying to pay for it. Friends, when we try to pay back for grace, we nullify its joy. And our gratitude becomes something like an amiable 
business transaction? Are you trying to pay God back? Are you frustrated because you think you should, but you know you can't? Stop it! (laughs) I release you! (laughs) Believer in Jesus Christ, God says to you this morning through Paul, his apostle, whom he called by his own will to tell you grace to you and peace through God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the, the people out there, those who don't follow the Lord and some of us in here, they're experiencing the common grace of God. In his patience, he continues to pour countless blessings on the besieged city of man that they may see his goodness and at the right time fling open the gates and run into his good and strong arms. We who believe have already done so. Don't reach into your pocket and try to give God a 10 spot for his trouble. Bask. (laughs) Bask in the radiant smile of God's grace with gratitude for his love. There's a place for obedience in the life of the Christian. Huge place. There's a place for laboring for the harvest. There's a place for mercy ministry. There's a place for every good work that God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. They have no place in the transaction of grace that God has poured upon us. No place. Our gratitude will overflow into these things, but they will never serve as payment for what God has done. Never. So for a few minutes this morning, just believe and experience the loving kindness of God and what John Piper called a spontaneous expression of pleasure in the gift of grace. The saving, loving kindness of God in Jesus Christ. Bask in it. It is yours in Christ Jesus. And you know what it leads to? Peace. Peace with God. Our whole liturgy was full of it. You know where that peace comes from? It comes from the grace of God through Jesus Christ. He didn't come down and figure out peace. He he brings it. He brings it into our lives. So grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He gives you his grace free of charge. And by the cross, he has made peace. In Christ, you are no longer the enemy of God. He calls you friend instead. Is that beautiful? You know, there's a fitting parallel to the grace that that other family showed us last week and the grace that God is showing us right now. You see, last week, that family adopted our daughter into theirs just like God has adopted us into his family. They cared for her and sheltered her, and at their own expense, they fed her with rich food. And they asked for nothing in return. God has done that for us. 
We were out there with the rest of humanity experiencing a flood of common grace that God shows to all people, but God did something for us. Through Jesus Christ, He's adopted us into His family. He has brought us under His special care, and now in mere moments, He will feed us with rich food, food that was bought at His own expense, the cost of His own Son. And we will experience, I pray, a spontaneous expression of pleasure and gratitude for the good gifts of God for the people of God. Let's pray. God, your grace is beyond our comprehension. It is better. It's better. There's no need to qualify it. Your grace is better. Your love is better. The peace that you bring is better. And so thank you for this table where you feed your people with rich food. Help us bask in your love in Christ's name. Amen.